I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We have been, for the last two weeks, and today and next week yet, we are in the midst of a short series of messages on our vision and our mission as a church. This is something we do not every fall, but often in fall, just to refocus our eyes and and, uh, be reminded of what we are about as a local church. And our vision, uh, captured in three words, deeper, closer, bolder, uh, we believe that God has called us, God is wanting to to form us as people to be, uh, be growing deeper in intimacy with Christ, closer in relationships with one another, bolder on mission for the lost. Next week we'll look at our mission of making Jesus known. Uh, our vision, deeper, closer, bolder, uh, two foundational matters is the gospel and the spirit. That is, uh, all of this growing that God wants, who he wants to shape us to be, is grounded in the gospel, in Christ's finished work, that Christ came, that he, he lived the perfect life of obedience that we were called to live, that we failed to live. He lived it, and then he died in our place, bearing the penalty that our sins uh, deserve. And through faith in him, we are forgiven, we are washed and made clean. Not only that, it's not just a blank slate, but Christ clothes us with his perfection. We are credited with his obedience. That's the gospel. And in light of that, our identity is changed. We were lost, now we're found. We were children under God's wrath, now we are children, sons and daughters adopted by the Father. That's the gospel. And then empowered by the Spirit, that is, the life that we are called to, the life that, the changes that God is wanting to make in us are not things that we can produce by our own efforts, by our own striving. They are produced by the Spirit of the living God who indwells in us, indwells us. And so, grounded in the gospel and empowered by the Spirit, we want to be men and women who are growing deeper in intimacy with Christ closer in relationships with one another and bolder on mission for the lost. Two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' words in Matthew 11 where he invites us to come to him and find rest in him, that is to receive his grace, receive the, the, the fruit of what he has done, and then to bind ourselves to him, take his yoke upon us, that is, and then walk with him daily and grow as his, as his disciples. Last week, we looked at Colossians where, uh, to paraphrase Paul, Paul says to us, Jesus says to us through Paul, that we are to put on Christ. That, and, and as we do that, that Christ-like character, that is something we live out in community, that we are called to be a family. We can't follow Jesus independently and alone as lone rangers, but we are called to live together as community, as family of faith, an outpost of heaven. This morning we turn to the third part of our vision, that is that God wants us to be growing bolder on mission for the lost. And so I want to begin uh, today, my title, entitled my message, Seeking the Source. So we're going to reflect on where that boldness comes from. I, I want to begin by sharing a story. It's a story that uh, some of you, many of you perhaps, have heard before, but it, it just really fits and it'll be new for some of you. Uh, years ago now, I don't remember, probably 10 years ago, 11 years ago, um, our boys were much younger, uh, and I was in the process in our home of doing some renovations in our washroom. Um, it, it was old, and so I, I, you know, I was attempting things I'd never done before, including some plumbing. Uh, I replumbed the shower and tiled it, and I replumbed behind the the bathroom sink, and, and I was a little insecure about my plumbing skills, whether those joints would hold, 
And uh, in fact, when I turned on the shower for the first time after finishing it, tiling, grouting, everything for the first time, um, a pipe burst in the wall. I had to break through the tile and, and fix that. And so there was probably good reason for my plumbing insecurity. Well, and, and not only that, but my tiling job, I'd never done that before, and I used, instead of a normal cement board, I used this other backer board that was kind of a foam, and I realized after I'd installed it that it, the one I'd done it was a little too thick from the floor. It was kind of a foam-type board, and it was supposed to be on walls, but I'd used it on the floor. And so with all of that backstory, it came a day where our youngest son came and told us, hey, there's a leak there's, there's water dripping in the basement. Our basement was largely unfinished, and so I, I went downstairs, and sure enough, out of some of the venting for the heat register, there was water dripping. And I thought, this is incredibly odd. How, how does water get in there? Now, there had been a massive rainstorm pretty recently, and so I thought, like, like did, it, did it come through some, some vent, some air vent on the, on the roof, and so I had a roofer out, was checking out the roof, whether it was leaking from there. I, I, I had a furnace guy come, because I'm looking at the furnace, like, how does water get into furnace ducts? That's not safe, it shouldn't happen, and, and you trace things out, and it's, it goes up, and I'm like, you know, there's gravity, water wouldn't go up, how does that happen? And, and so immediately, my plumbing insecurity hit, right, and I'm thinking, shoot, it's dripping in the walls behind the shower or the sink, and it's seeping through that foam board I put under the tiles, and it's dripping in on the register. I'm like, this is bad news, and so I started removing tiles, and, and, and it seemed dry, and so I thought, maybe, maybe it's dripping down the vent, and so I, I punched a hole through the drywall and found the, the, the vent, and it was dry, and, and, and this continued day after day after day. I called a contractor or two to come and look, trying to find the source of this water. And, and there was more and more. I took the, the vent off, and it would still drip. And I, I just like, where is this coming from? It seemed to stop then. Once everything was removed around that vent, the vent was gone, and the wall was half gone. And then a, a couple weeks later, suddenly, there was, there was a big splash. Well, Part of this, it often happened, I should have caught on probably earlier, it often happened when our youngest son was in the washroom. He'd flush the toilet, and so we'd ask him, like, how are you, what are you doing? Is the toilet rocking? Is there water leaking? Anyways, it stopped for a couple weeks, and then he came running upstairs, dad, 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 there's water on the floor again. It's dripping. And so I went downstairs, and sure enough, under that registry hole, there was water on the floor. And I went upstairs, and the, the, the floor was dry. The wall was dry. Everything was dry. And it began to dawn on me, there's only one place this water could be coming from, my son. And so I called him. I said, Brennan, come here. He came into the washroom. I said, Brennan, tell me the truth. You've been pouring water into the vent, haven't you? No. And I said, dude, like now, come clean, tell me. He said, yes. He'd been pouring water, and, and it, it turned out that when he realized how badly this was going, he was committed. He just he didn't know how to back up. And so he kept pouring it. He, he'd started by pouring it in there, trying to get his brothers, who he heard were downstairs. He thought maybe he could pour it on them. I found the source. When we look this morning at the, the matter of boldness, this boldness on mission, it is so vital for us to 
understand the source of this boldness, to understand where it comes from, to understand who it comes from. A little backstory before I read our text in Acts chapter 4. Jesus has been crucified, put in the grave, and uh, three days later, he has been resurrected back to life. When he died, when he was put to death by Rome, the disciples thought everything was over. Uh, they were distraught. It was, they were so devastated, but he was raised back, and he appeared to them, and he appeared to others over a period of 40 days, speaking about his kingdom, and then after 40 days, Jesus ascended to the Father's side in front of his disciples. They saw him go up into the sky. And then on the day of Pentecost, God poured out his Holy Spirit on his people. And, and Peter preached. It was his first sermon. Peter preached. He told people that they needed to repent, that is, turn from their sin, turn to Jesus, and trust Jesus as the one in whom their forgiveness, they, they would receive forgiveness, their sins would be washed away, and times of refreshing would come. And about 3,000 people believed. They repented and believed and came into relationship with Jesus. Then in Acts 3, we read the story, Peter and John are going to the temple, and they encounter a man who is in his 40s. He has been lame, unable to walk for his whole life, from birth. And, and here's what Peter says. This man looks up to them as they walk by, and Peter says, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And Peter takes that man by the hand, and the man's feet and ankles become strong and stands up for the first time in his life he stands up and he be, he follows them into the temple jumping and praising god he never walked before this is an amazing amazing event and people who see this people who see this man are filled with wonder they recognize this man for four decades plus he's been sitting at the temple unable to walk and now he's healed. And, and Peter preaches again, and he declares to the crowds that this man's healing is from Jesus. And he calls the people, his listeners who are amazed at this, he calls them to repent and to believe, to turn to Jesus that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And the crowds are amazed, and another 2,000 people become Christians. Now, the Jewish religious leaders felt otherwise. They reacted otherwise. Think about it. Just a, a number of weeks before, they had conspired together to get rid of Jesus. They wanted Jesus out of the picture. And so under false charges, they, they brought Jesus to the Romans because they couldn't kill someone themselves. And, and they got Pilate to agree eventually. And, and Rome sentenced Jesus to die as a messianic pretender, as a, as a would-be king. Here's, here's your king. This is what happens to kings of the Jews. Rome ruled. That was made very clear. And so Jesus was put to death. And you would think, they would think, problem solved. We got rid of him. But here are these men, these disciples, these followers of Jesus, proclaiming that Jesus is in fact alive again. And, and now this miracle has happened. This man who's never walked before in his life is jumping around in front of everyone. And people in, in amazement are turning to the disciples, hearing what they're proclaiming and believing them. So rather than getting rid of Jesus, things seem to be getting worse. And so they arrest Peter and John, put them in jail, and they sleep on it. We're going to pick things up the next morning, beginning in verse 5. We're going to read all the way to, chapter, uh, to verse 31. 
If you have your Bibles, Acts 4, 5 to 31. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach it all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And after further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. I want to ask four questions with you as we walk through this text this morning. First, what is it that they, the disciples, declare? Second, what do they exhibit? Third, what, what do they face? And fourth, how do they respond? So what do they declare? What do they exhibit? What do they face? And how do they respond? Question one, what do they declare? Peter and John are in prison overnight. They're fetched from there, brought before the Jewish religious leaders before the Sanhedrin. This would have been the, the, the highest ruling authorities for Israel. Uh, Rome ruled. Rome was the, the uh, political power of the day, but they gave Israel a little bit of autonomy in their religious life. So the Sanhedrin is this body of 70 men who, who were the highest religious authority in their nation. This is the group before whom Jesus went. This is the group who wanted to get rid of Jesus, and they are brought before him. And so you must 
Imagine what might have been going through their minds. Just weeks earlier, they had witnessed Jesus arrested, tried on false charges, and condemned to death. Now, two important things that Peter and John declare that we can take note of. First, in verse 7, the the religious leaders bring them in and they ask them, by what power or what name did you do this? Speaking of this miracle, the healing of the man who was lame. Now, these men are causing a major stir amongst the Jews in the temple. And think about it. The, the disciples have no authority. They're not, they're not trained and approved teachers. And they, they're in the temple proclaiming Christ, and thousands of people have already turned to Jesus. And so this group of men who are the r- religious rulers, they're, they're unhappy with us. These are unsanctioned preachers. They're not on board with what's going on. And so by what power, what name did you do this? They, they're, they're saying, really, essentially, they're asking, what, what's, what authority do you have to do this? They're, they're not teachers. They're, they're low-class Galileans from the north. They're blue-collar uh, fishermen. And they're preaching about Jesus, drawing huge crowds, creating this huge stir in the temple, and and this healing. So by what power, what name, who gave you the authority to do this, to do what you're doing in in our temple? And here we see, we encounter the first declaration made by Peter and John. Peter says, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Peter points emphatically to Jesus. By what authority? Jesus' authority. Jesus did this. This is about Jesus. It is in, by the name of Jesus that this man stands before you healed. Jesus has the power. Jesus has the authority. Jesus still has the power and authority. Killing him didn't get rid of him because he didn't stay dead. He's alive. God has raised him back from the dead, and he's alive, and he's still at work. That's what they say. That's, That's their declaration. It's by the name of Jesus. The power to heal was the power of Jesus, and it was operative through the disciples, but it wasn't their power. It was the power of Jesus. In John's gospel, Jesus says these these words, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. That's an amazing thing that Jesus says. He says, my disciples, that is all who follow me, will do greater things than I've done. Like We don't have time to dig into all that that means, but But Jesus' power is operative through his people, and that's what's happened here. Jesus has healed this man through them. It's his power, the the power and authority of the resurrected Christ. Second declaration Peter and John make is uh, the declaration of exclusivity, the exclusivity of Jesus or Christianity. Verse 12, Peter says this, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. The reality is this is an offensive claim in our world, in our culture today. It seems narrow. It seems arrogant. Who, who are Christians to say that only their faith is correct, that, that what they say is true is true and, and everyone else is wrong? But 
two things I want to note. First, it is not only Christianity that makes this claim of exclusivity. Tim Keller tells a story. Years ago, he was invited to participate in a panel at a, uh, at a local college in New York, him and a Jewish rabbi and a, a, a Muslim imam, and they agreed together uh, that, here, here's what Keller writes, that all three of them agreed on this statement. If Christians are right about Jesus being God, then Muslims and Jews fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. But if Muslims and Jews are right that Jesus is not God, but rather a teacher or prophet, then Christians fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. So the reality is many of those who say it's, it's arrogant for Christians to claim exclusivity are just not being honest or informed of the reality that all the world's major religions have that same claim to exclusivity. It's people who generally don't have any faith say, oh, all religions are the same, but the reality is Christians are not unique in that claim, and Jesus made this claim. Scripture makes this claim that salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Second, though Christianity certainly makes this claim that salvation is found only in Jesus, Christianity also uh, provides this amazing invitation to all, this invitation to come to Jesus, that, that all are welcome, all may come, come and receive his love, receive his grace, regardless of race, education, socioeconomic status, outsiders, even enemies are invited to come. Why? How would Jesus himself died for his enemies? At the, at the heart of Christianity is this story about Jesus who died for his enemies. Father, as he's being nailed to the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. In Romans, Paul says, while we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. So, so Christianity says salvation is found only through faith in Jesus. But Christianity, Christianity also offers this invitation that, that all may come and receive this free gift. It's open to all. The invitation is to all. There's something else that I want to say on this matter. Here Peter declares this truth, the exclusivity of Jesus, that salvation is found in no one else. But sadly, there are many in our church, in, in, in church today, who are being influenced by the cultural pressure that, that says, hey, that's, that's exclusive, that's arrogant, that's not acceptable. Here's some recent Canadian stats, too, I want to share with you. 46 to 48% of church leaders who work with children and youth say that it is wrong to share one's faith with someone in the hope that they will one day identify as Christian. That's... Canadian data, 31%, another one, 31% of church leaders say it is wrong to share their Christian beliefs with someone of a different religion or no religion with the hopes that they will one day identify as Christian. And I just want to say this morning or ask the question, how can that be? How, how can it be that, that we, would, we would say that we are disciples of Jesus, that we would believe his word and, and, the, and then say things like that, and I'm not pointing my finger, I'm just I'm saying the state of the church, when this is true of some in the church, that is a problem. God's word is clear that, that salvation is found only in Christ. And, and so it's, it's not loving to, to walk away from that, it's certainly not being faithful to Christ, faithful to God's word, 
We need to hold to God's word and, and recognize that Christ is the only way to salvation. And we need to, in word and deed, point others to him. Not change our minds or reject the authority of Scripture. Salvation is found in no one else. And so how do we, how do we point to Jesus? How do we begin to live this out? And you know, so much could be said. I, I simply w- want to make a point one of the ways that we seek to do this as the people of God, to, to point to Jesus, is by building relationships with people who don't know Jesus, building friendships with lost people. Stats say that most Christians, after, within two years of coming to faith, have no significant friendships with people who don't know Jesus. And that's a problem. I think if we're going to reach out for Jesus, we need to love people who are lost, who don't know Jesus. Not, not seeing them as projects, but, but genuinely building a relationship and loving them. And I think in, in our culture, it will take more and more time because so many people, they have no concept of a biblical worldview. Culturally, 50 years ago, you could say to someone on a bus, hey, you need Jesus. And they had a concept of sin and, and their need for forgiveness. And, and they might pray and put their faith in Jesus on the bus next to you. Today, people wouldn't even have a clue what you're talking about. And so it, it probably takes longer and building a relationship and, and walking with them and, and praying for those opportunities to point them to Jesus, serving them, loving them. And we as believers, all of us, are called to engage in that mission. In his book, Bold is Love, Bob Roberts Jr. writes this, I believe every, every disciple, every member of the body of Christ should use his or her vocation to serve humanity while sharing Jesus. We shouldn't do church We should be the church on the grid of society. The Great Commission will not be fulfilled because we raise up more preachers and missionaries like me, but because we raise up disciples who are willing to be the church every day. We're called into that mission to live as God's missionary people, loving people, serving people. And so we need to be engaged with people deeply. And so I want to challenge us to do that. Are we attentive to Jesus? Who's Jesus calling me to love? Who's Jesus calling me to serve? Am I putting myself in those places where over the long haul I'm, I'm loving people who need Jesus so that I can point them to Jesus through whom alone they can find salvation? Peter and John declare these two things, that, that the power and authority that healed this man is Jesus' power and authority, and secondly, that salvation is found in no one but Jesus. Question two, what do they exhibit? It's important for us to remember who these two guys are and the rest of the disciples. I already said that they're, they're not highly educated. They're, they're blue-collar guys, fishermen. I mean, picture them with you know, a, a, puffy, uh, a puffy vest and an Exxon hat or something. I mean, guys who grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, and, and they're in the temple preaching, preaching about Jesus. Just weeks earlier, uh, Peter, and both of them, Peter and John, both a bit, bit hot-headed. Peter, just a few weeks before, when Jesus said that he was going to be killed, betrayed, and, and put to death, Peter said, I, I won't, no matter what everyone else does, I will stand by you, Jesus. You can count on me. And that very night, three times, he said, yeah, I don't even know him. Talk about landing on your face. John John was with Jesus earlier in his ministry, and, and they went to a Samaritan village where they weren't welcomed. And John says, Jesus, should, should we call down fire from heaven, just blow them up? No, John. This, Peter and John, this is who it is. These two guys. 
And the text tells us that the religious leaders look at them like the disciples who are preaching in the temple, and they recognize that they were unschooled and ordinary men. These are not seminary-trained guys. They're not from the Sanhedrin. They're fishermen. And yet the religious leaders saw something. They recognized something. They saw this, this courage, this boldness. It was undeniable, and what they had done, what Christ had done through them was undeniable. This, this man that, that had been healed is standing there, jumping around. And our text says they took note that they had been with Jesus. I love that line. They had been with Jesus. See, Peter and John exhibit this courage, this courage that is grounded in their experience of fellowship with Jesus, they, they, they had experienced his grace. I mean, they, they had failed miserably. Peter had denied even knowing him, and, and yet they have experienced the, the forgiveness of Jesus. They, they, they know that Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty for their sin, and, and, and that he's alive, that even death couldn't hold him, and, and, and being with Jesus has changed them. This courage that that they exhibit this boldness is not, we under, need to understand this, please. It's not innate to them. It's not a quality or characteristic uh, of Peter and John. It is a, a boldness, a courage that comes from Jesus, from being with Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. Because when he was arrested, they all ran away. When Jesus was on the cross dying, they thought it was over, they were devastated. They were scared, and they, they ran and hid behind locked doors. And then they encountered Jesus alive. He was alive. And everything was changed because of Jesus. Question three, what is it they face? Well, this crew of religious leaders, they're at a loss. They don't know what to do how to deal with this. They, they can't deny this amazing miracle, this healing that has happened. And so they send Peter and John out of the room and they confer together. And they say, okay, we, we, we can't deny, like this guy's jumping around, like that's not an option. We can't say that nothing happened here as people know something happened. But we can't have them spreading all this news, this, this, all this Jesus talk. we got to get them to shut up. How do we do this? So they call them back, they warn them, they threaten them, say stop or else. They don't know what the or else is, but stop talking about Jesus. Stop doing stuff in the name of Jesus. Peter and John say, hey, you know, we're going to listen to him, not you. And they return to the church, they return to the people of God, and they, they report all that had been said to them the warnings, the threats. And they've, they've just seen what happened to Jesus not that many weeks earlier. The, the image of Christ on the cross is still fresh in their minds. And not only did the Jewish religious leaders conspire to kill Jesus, but the Roman Empire had sanctioned it. And so they recognized this opposition, the threats, the, the very real dangers that they faced. In fact, we know with the exception of the disciple John who was exiled to the island of Patmos that all of the followers of Jesus, with the exception of Jude, will be martyred for their faith. They will 
be killed because they are followers of Jesus. The threats are real. It's not theoretical danger. In fact, soon Stephen will be the first Christian martyr. He'll be stoned to death. Not long after that, John's brother James will be put to death by Herod. They face threats. They face danger. They face warnings, challenges. Do not speak about Jesus. Leads us to question four. How do they respond? And this is perhaps the most important thing I want you to see this morning. Verse 24, we read this. When they hear this, that is, they reported to the church. Peter and John reported to the church. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. In the face of threats, the people of God prayed. They prayed. They, they prayed Psalm 2. If you're familiar with Psalm 2, David wrote Psalm 2. Uh, why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? Why do people resist God, the sovereign one, the, the, one, who is, the, the one who healed this man? Why, why resist? Why resist him? That they, they prayed and declared through Psalm 2 the sovereignty of God, that he is king of kings, Lord of lords, that he is over all things. That even though Jesus went to the cross, they, they recognized now that they, the religious leaders and the Romans, did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. And they prayed, asking God to give them boldness. Look at verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. This is so vital for us to see. They, they don't gather together and try and psych each other up. They, they don't gather and have a pep talk. They don't, they don't dig deep within themselves to find this boldness. They pray. They pray and they ask God, give us that boldness. Give us the boldness that we need. And God pours out his spirit upon them. And they were filled, we read, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. They prayed. They said, God, give us boldness. And God pours out his spirit on them and gives them that boldness. And this isn't the only time we encounter prayers like this. In, in Ephesians, Paul writes this to the Ephesians. He says, Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Pray, ask God to give me boldness, Paul says. The church here in Acts says, God, give us boldness. And God pours out his Holy Spirit upon ordinary people, people like you and me. I don't want this message to be some sort of pep talk. I, I, I don't want to try and twist anyone's arm or apply any kind of guilt. If you're like me, you probably recognize lots of moments in your life where you failed to be bold, where you failed to reach out, where you failed to say what you could have said. I know that's true for me. What I hope God will lead us to do is that he'll lead us to pray. That he'll lead us to pray that he would pour out his spirit afresh. That he would give us boldness. And what I want us to see is that this boldness, this is not something we find within ourselves, something we muster up. No, 
the boldness required, the boldness envisioned here is not something innate to us. It is the gift of God given by His Spirit. I love what Daryl Johnson says. I think it's Daryl Johnson about prayer. He says, prayer is acknowledged helplessness. I love that. We can't do this. We can't produce this. We can't find it by looking in. But we can fall on our knees as the people of God and say, God, make us bold. Fill us with your spirit. Move our lips. Move our lives out into the world, recognizing, Lord, that all around us are people who desperately need you. When it comes to living on mission, when it comes to living as God's missionary people, there are things that we can learn, skills that we can acquire, things that we can do. I encouraged you earlier, like, what does it look like for you to reach out and, and nurture friendships with people who don't know Jesus? Like, true friendships. We can do things like that. We can take intentional steps. And, and we can seek to prepare ourselves uh, so that we have rehearsed maybe in our, our minds ahead of time, hey, if someone says something or if I'm asked this question, uh, here, here's what I can say. And, and I know... At Cape Chegwin, where I do a bunch of coaching uh, over the last 10 or 11 years, uh, I, I've, I've done that in my head. I've, I've rehearsed conversations because I know at some point someone will say something or ask me, why are you doing this? Why are you still coaching? Your kids left here like a long time ago. And, and I want to be ready. And so, so I've done that. And I actually had the joy a couple weeks ago in a conversation with one of the administrators. And, and this was no huge evangelistic moment, but just talking about it, and I said, hey, I am, I am happy to be back serving the school because Jesus has served me. And this is what Jesus wants us to be as his followers, that we serve others as he has served us. And so it's a little way of pointing. So we can, we can reach out intentionally and build relationships. We can, we can rehearse and be prepared to give an answer. There are things we can do to live missionally. But when it comes to boldness, when it comes to being bold, I want us to see unequivocally that that the source is not within us. It's not something we, we dig and find in us. It's something that comes from Christ, from being with Christ. It comes from the Spirit of Christ. And that's something that we need to seek from Jesus. We need to be men and women who are with Jesus. We, we need to reflect on the glory of His love, His, His death in our place, that all our sin, all of it has been paid for, that Jesus bore what we deserved, and we are washed, we are clean, we are pure, we are holy. We're clothed with his perfection. That we stand in his love and his grace no matter what happens, no matter what challenges we face, no matter what sadnesses we encounter, that we have this joy and this assurance and this hope and that salvation is found in no one but Jesus and so we can point others to Jesus. And so we need to be on our knees saying, Jesus, you are the source of boldness. You are the one who, who can fill us with that. And so, come Holy Spirit, fill us. Make us bold for you. I want us to see that. That we would see the source. That we would see that this comes from Jesus. And that we, as his people, would, would seek him. That we would be men and women who pray. Father, make us bold. Make us